0: Hey, good morning, Calvary Chapel. Go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, and I'll do the same. We're uh, finishing up a chapter this morning. Last week we left off with Jesus in Samaria, and it's a really unique part of his ministry where Jesus is um, seeking out those people who no one else would think to seek out. Uh, He's hanging out with outsiders, starting with the woman at the well and then the whole Samaritan community, which would have been just very um, opposed to you know most other Jewish rabbis, and where we come into the story in John chapter four, um, it, it says that now after the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, the servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus told him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Let's pray and we'll get into this. Jesus, we, uh, we thank you that you are the, the great physician, that you heal people, and that you seek out people that no one else is seeking out. Uh, and the chapter began with the Samaritan woman at the well, uh, and then now we meet this, this nobleman in, in a weak place, in a, in a dark place, and you encounter him and give him what his heart desires and more. Um, and we just pray that through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would be reaching every soul in, in our church and in our community. And that you, uh, you who are diligent to seek out every soul uh, would do so through this sermon and throughout this week in whatever means uh, possible. Uh, by whatever means possible. We, we love you and we ask you to, to bless our study of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, So this really is a a, uh, compare and contrast kind of portion of scripture. We've had Jesus in Samaria, and then now Jesus is in Galilee. We had a Samaritan woman who had um, been married five times before, maybe a widow at some point in in that process, uh, certainly alone, isolated, apart from community, reasonable to believe that she would be poor. Uh, And then on the other side of things, on the other hand, we have a nobleman, a, a, someone of royalty. And um, it's interesting because the woman uh, initially didn't see that she had a need for Jesus. Um, she wants to argue theology and stuff. And you can go back and look at the beginning of chapter 4 for that. And then here we have this person who has everything economically, politically, he's connected, you know, he's, he's got everything. But he has great need because his son is dying. And the different ways... Uh, in which Jesus encounters these people is is interesting. It's worth noting. It may be surprising uh, for some of you. And so we have a, a transition verse here. Um, Jesus had spent two days, we read, in Samaria, of all places, reaping a harvest of souls. He was heading north from Jerusalem towards Galilee. That's where he went to Samaria. He met the woman at the well. He spends two days there. Now they're leaving Samaria, going, finishing the journey towards Galilee. And it says in uh, John 4, verse 43... After the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So the the first few verses here, 43 through through 45, are leading us to a new location, Uh, but they're also sort of anchoring us In another. Now the the three gospels. The first three gospels. Matthew, Mark and Luke. Are focused mainly on Jesus' ministry in northern Israel. Galilee. And John spends more time and more ink. uh, Describing what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem. Well, Well here when we see Jesus go back to Galilee. In the north. John is sure to tie the string. Back to Jerusalem. The people of the north of Galilee. Accept him because of what he had done in Jerusalem in the south. But John is saying something strange here. He says that Jesus goes to Galilee because a prophet is without honor in his own country. Now, Galilee, that region, is Jesus' own country. Jerusalem is not where he's from. And Samaria, which he just left, is certainly not where he's from. Uh, Nazareth, his hometown, is in the north of Israel. It's not on the Sea of Galilee. It's a long day's walk or so from there. Um, And the other Gospels mention Jesus being rejected in Nazareth. But here in John, Nazareth isn't mentioned at all. The rejection that the other Gospel writers pin is is on Nazareth. John extends that rejection as something that is coming from the whole of Galilee. But it's, it's still rather strange. While elsewhere, it talks about Jesus leaving Nazareth because a prophet is not accepted in his own country. Here in John, it mentions Jesus going to Galilee for the same reason, because he will not be accepted. Now, this is a hard truth, but it, it's central to the gospel and, and the doctrine of the Incarnation. Jesus came in order to be rejected. Now, he goes to the ones who would kill him and reject him and deny him. He goes to the ones who misunderstand him. He doesn't just come for a job that had rejection and persecution as as a sort of unfortunate side effect. He came in order to be rejected as the mediator between God and man. We know that he experienced all the wrath of God that was directed towards man. He received that on the cross. But if you think about it, you realize he was also experiencing all of man's rejection against God as well. He's he's experiencing firsthand all of man's wrath against the divine. In, in taking on the form of a man, humiliation was part of that deal. The cross was the culmination. But in his life, he also took part in these sufferings. And, and this can be a hard thing to think on it, it it's one of the it's one of the difficult things to see that Jesus intentionally came to those he knew would kill him but it's also hard to understand in John's gospel because his words are kind of confusing and we see next in John that Jesus goes because he will be without honor and then it says that the people of Galilee did receive him because of what they saw at the feast right it says he goes to Galilee for he himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. That seems like it's contrasting, doesn't it? He received, he is received, but he's without honor in his own country. And he came to be rejected. How does that all work together? Well, consider the motives, if you would, of those people who receive him. It says, John is very specific here, it says that they did so because of what Jesus had done at the feast. What was that? When was the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem? Well, we read about it in John chapter 2. He cleansed the temple. Jesus became the one who flips tables. That was the reputation that he was coming back to Galilee with. And the people, oh, they like that guy. And they're going to like him more because they're going to figure out that they can get free food from him. They can save on doctor bills because they go to Jesus. Jesus is a nice guy to have around. But... Is that the honor that Jesus wanted? Or is that the honor that God deserves? No. In fact, there's a kind of honor that is really an equal to rejection. Later down in the passage, we see that Jesus tells someone, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And he doesn't say that as a compliment, right? That's a harsh statement. He will speak of the crowds later. You're only here because I gave you free bread. Now is that is that kind of welcome what Jesus demands? Is that kind of faith a saving faith? no. Now it is possible for Jesus to be welcomed but without the proper honor and we, we talked about this in John chapter one when we said uh, we saw the word receive you know his own did not receive him but as, as many as received him he gave the right to, uh, to become children of God and then that word receive, to receive Jesus. That's kind of worked its way into our our Christian, uh, Christianese vernacular. You know, it's something we're used to saying, you receive Jesus, receive Jesus. And, and when I taught on that back at the beginning of December, I mentioned that to receive Jesus is to receive him as he is and as he says he is. Okay. It's not to receive an imaginary Jesus. And it's certainly not to receive Jesus on your terms while not being willing to accept his terms. You know, you're not a very good host if you open your door and welcome in a guest and then say, you go to your room and I'll call you when I need you, but I'm leaving my life the way it is. That's not receiving, uh, and that's not how we receive Jesus. So Jesus is welcomed, uh, but it's possible to be welcomed without the right kind of honor. It's possible for people to accept Jesus on their own terms, and in doing so, they are not accepting him at all. That's really what the people do. There's a kind of false familiarity at play here. There's a kind of knowledge that prevents investigation. Oh, I already know you. I know everything about you. I don't need to look any further. It's generally this kind of familiarity that Jesus fights against. He, he did it with Nicodemus, right? What was Nicodemus' leading line? We know who you are. And Jesus had to convince him, no, you don't. And he did this with the Samaritan woman at the well. She thinks she knows the difference between Jew and Samaritan, so she's got a handle on this theological dis- discussion. And, w- and both Nicodemus and the woman at the well, they both think they know Jesus, and so he has to first make them see that they don't. They don't know him, but he does know them. And of course, we, we know from the other Gospels that that's a that's a hard sell for the people in his hometown of Nazareth and the place that he grew up in. And it's also a, a hard thing for these people in Galilee to receive Jesus really for all he's worth. But Jesus goes to them anyway. And I I think, just uh, maybe repeating something from last week on marveling, I think this is something that we should marvel at. I think this idea that Jesus goes anyway to the people that reject him, it should be something that's it's may be surprising to us. And if that is shocking to you, if that's surprising to you, that Jesus would intentionally go to the people who would reject him, then, then um, good. You should be surprised at that. But also notice that this is, in, this is pretty consistent with God's dealing with people. If you zoom out at scripture, there's a whole lot to be surprised about. You know, after Isaiah says, Here I am, send me in Isaiah 6, you know, a famous passage, a favorite passage of many believers. Well, after he says, Here I am, send me, Then the Lord says, go and tell this people, keep hearing, but uh, do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes. Let's say see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. That's a hard passage to read. Jesus chooses the 12 and Judas was one of them. Jesus washes Peter's feet. And Peter denies him. Jesus goes to Galilee knowing that whatever honor he receives there is not the honor of spiritual, truthful worship that he deserves. And he goes anyway. And he goes to you. How many times? You can't even count. How many times have you dishonored him? How many times have you withheld worship and honor from him? when he's deserved it. But he comes to you anyway. And he hasn't stopped. He hasn't slowed down. He hasn't somehow, you know, stopped coming to you and and knocking on the door um, because of your sins or your arrogance or your failures. And he goes to you and he knows actually that that after you receive him this time, you're going to fail him again. And he still goes. And he goes anyway. And that that's what we see in his ministry in Israel and that's what we see in the testimony of the church. And you know may, maybe the way uh he meets with you, maybe the way that the next time he's going to meet with you it's going to be like how he meets this nobleman um, in the following passage. And in the passage that we're going to read, we see a person who has great need uh and Jesus supplies the need but also digs deeper. Um he gives this man what he asks for, but then he gives him a realization that he should be asking for even more. So let's let's read this passage. Verse 46, it says, So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea and to Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Okay, so the geography matters a little bit. Uh, Jesus is in Cana of Galilee, where he has done his first miracle. Now, this nobleman has a son who was sick in Capernaum. Okay, those two cities aren't really close by. Capernaum is about 20 miles from Cana. So this nobleman walked or rode or took a bus in order to find Jesus. He sought him out. Okay, so it says he's a nobleman. That's literally a royal person. Um, If he's royalty, that would mean that he is a relative... uh, or perhaps a government official in the house of one of the Herods. Okay, not real popular people among Orthodox Jews at the time. So if you can imagine how you can imagine how well he would have been accepted by most of the religious and patriotic Jews of the day. Herod was not popular. Um, this guy might be an outcast in his own way, just like the woman at the well was in her own way. Except This nobleman is wealthy and well-connected in political circles. But the fact that this man is a nobleman is really not the most important thing about him. And it was not the thing that he would have felt most deeply identified him either. His son was dying. And at this point in the man's life, this was the most important thing to him. I guarantee it. His job, his rank, his social standing, his bank account, none of that mattered. His popularity didn't matter. His politics didn't matter. The distance that he had to go to find Jesus, that didn't matter. 20 miles is a small distance. What mattered to him was this this shred of hope that he had. That he could give his son a chance at life. The number one most important thing to this nobleman at this point in time is the survival of his son. And it says that his son was at the point of death. So this is the final chance. This is the last hope. I don't know if it was a long illness that he struggled with or a sudden accident. We don't know. But, but he's close. He's close to death. And, and he's heard about a man. The nobleman has heard about a man who makes the blind see and can make the lame walk. And he figures, what have I got to lose? If this will work, I've got to try it. Now, we can empathize with this man. We can feel his, his desperation. His longing and, and you can imagine the look on his face and the, the weariness that comes from hanging on that last shred of hope, which is why Jesus' first words to this man really seem pretty pretty jarring at first. In verse forty eight says Then Jesus said to him, Unless you believe you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Does this seem like a nice thing to say? To this man, <laughs> not really. What is this bedside manner coming from the great physician? The man is begging. And Jesus says, you won't believe unless you see a sign. Unless you see signs and wonders. Now, if you were given the premise, you personally, if you were, you were given the first part of the story, a man travels to see Jesus, he begs for his dying son's life. If that's all you knew, and then you were asked to give what Jesus would say afterwards, just fill in the script, what do you think he would say? What do you think Jesus would say to a man like this if you were writing the Bible? Wouldn't you put more compassionate words in his mouth? Wouldn't you guess that he would say, you know, your faith has made him well? Or, or something like, peace, be still. You know, don't you want him to say something a bit softer, more palatable? And if your answer is yes, then I hope you can see the danger of putting words in Jesus' mouth. You know, Jesus Calling style. Because what we feel like God would say in a situation isn't always what God actually says in a situation. The man comes, he begs, and Jesus says something that is hard to stomach. He says, you people won't believe unless you see a sign. That is hard to read. So what can we learn from it? Well, this this nobleman isn't who we would normally think of as a person who requires signs to believe. You can easily imagine a person who thinks of Jesus as a magician, you know, and and the blessing of God as just cool tricks and party favors. There are people like that. There have been people like that through history. We read about them in the book of Acts. It's easy to imagine Jesus' words towards a person like that, you know, when, when Jesus is on trial, we see that kind of attitude from King Herod. You know, he wants Jesus to do a trick. Uh, but the person who is pleading for their child's life, are they really just wanting, are they seeking a sign? Well, maybe. <laughs> sort of. Now, a, a couple things to see first here. While Jesus is speaking to one individual, he is also speaking about a group of people. When he says you, in verse 48, it's Plural. In the New King James, it says, you people. And the word people is added, but it's accurate. Uh, if you're from the South, this word is y'all. Okay, some of your Bibles will say, you people, unless you people see the signs and wonders, you all will by no means believe. That's an accurate translation. So while Jesus is definitely speaking to the nobleman and including him in this group of people, he is not directing all of this towards him alone. He's talking about the greater problem, a systemic problem, with the idea that the results of answered prayer are the cause for faith rather than a true faith and hope preceding the results. And this was a problem in Jesus' ministry. Uh, This is a problem in, in the church throughout its history. And this is a problem in Old Testament Israel. You know, Israel, under the leadership of Moses, they saw more signs and wonders than any other people in history. The plagues in Egypt... You know, their deliverance, the exodus from Egypt, parting the Red Sea, then water from a rock, and manna from heaven, and being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, come on. But, but that was the generation that did not have faith in God to bring them into the promised land. They did not have faith. That's their identifying feature. That you look back at that generation of Israel, and they are the faithless generation. You know, how's that for a label? Those are the people who worship the golden calf. That was the generation that died in the wilderness just to walk over, you know, uh, a walk one day's distance from the promised land. But they died because of their unbelief. And the same kind of problem continues through Jesus' ministry with crowds, with family, even with one of the disciples, Thomas, right? To Thomas, Jesus says, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. You've, uh, or, sorry, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We'll read that when we get to John 20, verse 29. Thomas had seen everything else. You know, the Jesus who, who, uh, who healed the sick and the, and the blind, who, who raised Lazarus from the dead, Thomas had seen all that. And the Jews who killed him had seen him heal. His family had been there when the water was turned to wine. But none of those things produced faith. Now, there's a real contrast being drawn between what happened in Samaria earlier in the chapter and what happens in Galilee in these verses. Um, At the the bottom of the page, okay, at at the end of the chapter, you'll read that this is the second sign that Jesus did after he came out of Judea into Galilee. Okay, so he had turned water into wine. That was his first sign. And John only includes seven signs. Even though Jesus did many others, but John includes seven signs, and, and, but these are the ones that he puts in order. There's the first and there's the second. The second sign is the healing of this noble man's son. Okay? Which means that in Samaria, he didn't do any miracles. When he was with uh, the woman at the well, and all the people believed, they believed because they heard his words. They believed because faith comes by hearing, not seeing. Um, and there's this contrast being drawn between the faith uh, of the Samaritan kind and what happens in Galilee in these verses. And in Thomas's case, later on, Jesus does give him what he needs in order to believe. He says, put your hand in my side, look at my wounds, here's my hands, here's my scars. But he says first, this isn't the best way. This is not a mature faith. Now with the nobleman here, in our story, Jesus is going to give him what his heart seeks. He's going to heal him, but he's still going to point out that there are problems with the man's heart. There's an immaturity, there's a weakness. And that there's a better kind of faith that's coming. Uh, that brings us back, though, to the uncomfortable part of the passage that I've been putting off. The man's son is dying. That's serious. He's coming to Jesus. That's good. He's asking for healing. That's good. And, you know, he's kind of an early adopter here. If this is the second sign, then he, you know, I mentioned earlier that he's heard about the one who heals the sick and, and makes the blind see. Um, but I don't know how much he heard about that. Because this is only the second sign that Jesus has done. So maybe he's relying on prophecy for things like that. you know. But he hasn't seen Jesus heal. He has some faith. And Jesus strongly insinuates that there's a problem with the man's faith. That he won't believe unless there's a sign. That he's part of the you all that seek a sign before they place their faith. Now this isn't something that we like to examine. But there's a reality here that Jesus is addressing. Suffering... Isn't the same as salvation. Feelings, however authentic, however powerful, are no excuse for a lack of faith, and they are not—they—they uh, aren't themselves a replacement for faith. This man comes to Jesus, feeling very deeply, and he has some sort of faith, maybe just a shell of faith, in, in asking Jesus to do what he can for his son. But Jesus, who sees hearts far better than we do. He recognizes that there is a lack of faith, that there is a weak faith here. He knows that he will believe if he sees, but he also knows that this man's faith is, and needs so many of these crutches, needs so much of this propping up. He knows that the man isn't there yet. Now we can rejoice, and we should rejoice, in the great mercy of God. And we can also stand humbled by our own weakness and our frailty when we can see ourselves in this story. Jesus gives this man what he asks for. Even if in asking, this, uh, in asking, this man was, like so many of us, seeking the gift more than we were really seeking the giver. We've talked at length about how there's different kinds of faith. On the, on the bottom, there's the faith of demons, right? Even the demons believe and tremble. We read that in James. That's not a saving faith. That's not a faith you even want. But then there are other degrees. There's, there's uh, immature faith and mature faith and, uh, faith. and Jesus indicates that this man was lacking some measure of faith. Now, again, I have to say that God, in his mercy, he does visit us in our weakness. That's one of the, the real beautiful features of Jesus' ministry you know where there's, there's this prophecy that Jesus fulfills, where He doesn't break the bruised reed, or quench the smoldering flax. Okay, the smolder, the bruised reed. That's you know a uh, picture of a reed that you pick up from the, the river or something. If it's bruised, it doesn't stand up straight, right? Does Jesus throw it out? No, He splints it and makes it straight. A smoldering flax is like a torch, you know, or something you're starting a fire with. And there's smoke, but no flames. And you could put it in a bucket of water and just put it out, or you can fan it into flame. And that's, that describes Jesus' ministry. He sees weak faith. He's seen your weak faith. But instead of extinguishing that, he blows it into flame. Now, we, we can rejoice that God visits us in our weakness. And he does give us the things that we, we, we desire the things that we feel we need, and he goes beyond that; he often gives us what we what we want and when when our our faith is weak, that doesn't seem to reduce his intention at all to bless us sometimes it it does make us incapable of receiving, but praise the Lord, he often vetoes our unbelief and blesses anyway you know we we have a a broad spectrum of miracles that Jesus does, and at times you know. It says he couldn't do very many miracles in one place because of their lack of faith. But then in other places, he raises the dead. How much faith can a dead person really have? You know, Jesus blesses so much, so often, in, in excess of our faith. But that does not mean our weak faith is perfect. And it doesn't mean that he's going to leave us in a state of immaturity. That doesn't mean that we should all be more like Thomas, demanding our evidence. Jesus is saying that there's a faith that's better, that's stronger, that's more wholesome, that's more pleasing, even than the, the, even the faith of a parent interceding for a dying child. There's a faith better than that. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, it says that no one can come to God unless he first believes that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Seems like the nobleman probably had this kind of faith. That's important, but that's entry-level stuff. It's possible that the nobleman was getting just that far, but then there's a faith that comes to God in love, not out of necessity, but because we have tasted and seen how gracious the Lord is. Now, this nobleman, he's come 20 miles to Jesus for the sake of his son, and I believe Jesus used that situation to minister to this man, and we'll see that the fruit comes you know, is born out in his whole family. But the fact is, this guy did not come to Jesus when he didn't feel he needed his services. If the boy had been healthy, would this man have worshipped Jesus? Seems very unlikely. You know, times when we are in dire need are sometimes the sweetest times with the Lord because we are on our face before him. We're seeking him with a heart more tuned, more dedicated to his purposes. But one of the benefits of those times of emergency is the pruning and the self-awareness that we come to, realizing that when times were fine, we didn't come to the Lord. When we had everything, we didn't enjoy God. Jesus sends that message to the Laodiceans in Revelation. Revelation 3.17 You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiful poor, blind, and naked. We, we've probably all been there. We don't feel sick. We don't go to the doctor. If we don't feel spiritually sick, then we don't need a great physician. Right? Wrong. <laughs> there's an. It's an indication of our immaturity to think that we're well. You know, and there's another level of faith when... We love God for himself, solely because of who he is, and on, not only for what he can give us. Um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, he wrote this short little piece in the Middle Ages called On Loving God. It's a short book, more like an article really, and in that work he says that at first man loves himself for his own sake. That's how we're, we're, we're born with that, self-love, right? We're all selfish right from the get-go. Uh, and Next he perceives that he cannot exist by himself and so begins by faith to seek after God. And I think uh, that's where the nobleman is in our story. He realizes there's things that he can't provide. Um, there's things that he can't supply for his son. He can't exist by himself, so he's seeking after someone greater. So it says, you know, next he, he cannot exist by himself and so begins by faith to seek after God and to love him and as something necessary to his own welfare. So there's a love, but still kind of a selfish love. Right? It's, it's the baby who loves his mother for survival's sake. Um, that's, that's the, uh, that is the second degree, to love God, not for God's sake, but selfishly. But when he has learned to worship God and to seek him aright, meditating on God, reading God's word, praying and obeying his commandments, he comes gradually to know what God is and finds him altogether lovely. So having tasted and seen how gracious the Lord is, he advances. There's a greater faith. There's another level of love. This is what how the psalmist prays, um, I, I've become, you know, I've quieted my soul. I'm like a weaned child with his mother. Okay? Uh, a breastfeeding child with his mother complains a lot because he wants to eat. Uh, a weaned child wants the mother for the, the shelter of comfort. And, and for the company. For the company. And... And then in in that book of of St. Bernard, um, not the dog, the theologian, in the book, he he looks forward to resurrection. He says, when the love of the flesh will be swallowed up in the love of the spirit so that our weak human affections will be made divinely strong. We'll be able to love fully, to have faith fully. So you you can hopefully see that Jesus, who, who is compassionate to this man. He shows him mercy and grace and compassion. He's merciful towards the sick. He ministers to the weak. The, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and helps those with a contrite spirit. He's also a, a surgeon cutting away and trimming. And he's he's he is right in pointing out lack of faith where it exists. Jesus isn't rude, he's not mean. He is saying there's more. There's so much more for you than this desperate crying for your needs. There's so much more. I'm going to give you your needs. You cry out to the Lord in times of trouble and he'll help you. I mean, the the Psalms are full of prayers for you to pray in that season. But then Jesus comes and he says, there's more. There's a better relationship that you can have with the Lord than only, you know, what we call foxhole prayers. There's a better love. There's a better faith. There's a way that you can come to me that's better than this Now the man, of course, is frantic, and we can't blame him for that. He's got tunnel vision, just like any of us would have in this scenario. He's got one thing on his mind, and he says, in verse 49, "Sir, come down before my child dies." And again, this is a measure of faith that he's showing. He believes that Jesus is capable of healing. Now Jesus does not discourage the man from asking for the miraculous. God does not tell us to limit ourselves to small prayers, ever. Jesus did not say what he did to make the man's faith smaller. And the guy didn't take it as a discouragement. He presses in and he asks again. He is the one who asks, seeks, and knocks, and he sticks with it. He reminds me of the man that Jesus encounters after the transfiguration, after Jesus comes down from that mountain, and and he encounters a man whose son was demon-possessed. And we mentioned this story last week because it 's where Jesus says that that kind doesn 't come out but by prayer and fasting, but it 's also the story that has my, my very favorite prayer in scripture it's uh, where the sons or sorry the boy 's father he says, "I believe, help my unbelief that 's all he has to offer. And this man is offering his mustard seed. he doesn 't have a mature faith, but he has a fervent faith. He doesn't understand the theology of Jesus, surely, but he is seeking him in his time of need. And that's a mustard seed that Jesus honors. But, you know, we, we talk about the mustard seed of faith, and it's like, ah, it's just that little bit, and you see, you know, you used to see mustard seeds in, like, necklaces or in, you know, Christian jewelry or whatever, and it's like, yeah, yeah, you know why the mustard seed is cool? Because it grows into this big plant. It matures. Like, you know, we, we celebrate the seed because of its potential, But if all we had is seeds, there would be no trees and no fruit. You know, that's not the end goal. And so Jesus, he honors this mustard seed, but you can see he is gardening. You know, he is putting on the fertilizer right here, and he's going to grow this man's faith into something greater. And he's showing us that faith is, is honored if it's small, but its purpose is to grow. Charles Spurgeon he said the child was at death's door therefore his father begs that mercy's door be open and Jesus opens that door Jesus is kind to this man verse 50 Jesus said to him go your way your son lives so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way and as he was now going down his servants met him and told him saying your son lives Okay, so it says the man believes, and it's not the last time we're going to see that he believes. So you can picture his stair steps of faith. He's growing in faith. Go your way, your son lives. Now that's good news, right? But it's also another test. It's a test of faith. What had the man asked Jesus? He had asked him to come with him and hurry about it. You have to follow me, Jesus. It's a long walk back to Capernaum. If you don't come quickly, my son is dead. Let's go. Let's go right now. And again, this is a mustard seed of faith. It's a small faith. And Jesus is going to force it out of its shell and he's going to test it some more. By saying to the man, Go your way. Jesus is saying, I'm not holding your hand. (laughs) He says, I'm not coming with you. The man asked for something specific, which was, Uh, according to his limited faith. And Jesus says, no. And by saying, go your way, your son lives. Jesus is asking this man to go back towards the tragedy that he left, believing that something had changed, even though he had zero evidence of any healing having taken place. Jesus is testing this man's faith. He said, you people don't have faith until you see the sign And the man says, come on, let's heal it. And Jesus says, can you be different? Can you believe me without seeing? Can you do that? He's testing his faith. He's gardening the mustard seed. He offers no token of assurance. He doesn't offer a prayer. He doesn't send medicine or a lucky charm. The only thing Jesus offers this man is his word. And it's enough. By not going with the man, Jesus is demanding a response of faith from this nobleman. If you really believe that I can heal, you'll believe that I can do it from here. If you really trust in me, you'll trust in my word. And the best part about this, I think, is that the nobleman does. He does trust. He doesn't complain and manipulate and try to get Jesus to solve the problem his way. He's saying, no, you have to be there. You have to actually be there and pray. Jesus had told him the problem was solved God's way, and the man took Jesus at his word. In fact, in the NIV, that's how this verse reads. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. He walks home just like Jesus told him to do. Now, guys, this is faith. This is that next level of faith. It's taking Jesus at his word and walking in it. The man believed. He believed Jesus. But the sentence Jesus speaks has two parts go your way first. And then, your son lives. And the way faith is applied to each half is different and significant and unique. To to believe the good news of the last part, your son lives. Well, that's great, but it's mostly internal, right? You either believe or you doubt. You say, I don't think he's really alive. No, I don't think you did it. Can you do it again? Pray. Come with me. Or, you acknowledge in your heart that what Jesus says is true and you say within yourself, wow, my son lives. And you believe him. And you rejoice in that. But to believe that sentence doesn't really require a physical response. You either believe in your heart or you don't. But the first part of the sentence, go your way, that requires a response. And these words also need faith applied to them. These words, too, are words that are meant to be believed. And if I asked you if you believe every word of Scripture as good evangelical Christians, you will say, of course, yes, yes. But if you're a good Bible student and you think things through, you'll also know that you believe things in Scripture in different ways. Right? Uh, when I always have fun with this when I teach uh, the theology class I do in, in, at the Bible College in Mexico. I always bring this up in the Bibliology section just to see if the class is paying attention. And I say, is the whole Bible true? And they always say, yes. So do we believe every word is the Word of God? Yes. Are we called to obey the Word of God? Yes. And then I just say Job 2 verse 9. Go ahead and turn there. Job 2 verse 9. Okay. And they all turn there. And if you don't know what Job 2 9 is, it's when Job's wife gives him this beautiful encouragement, curse God and die. Do you believe that verse? Well, we believe it in a very different way than we believe John three 16, don't we? We believe that she said it. Uh, but we don't believe it's a command for our lives, right? And there's there's verses that we believe like that. When Satan tempts Jesus, we believe those passages differently than a narrative section in the book of Acts, and we believe those verses in a slightly different way. How we apply faith to the verse, to the word, is different um, for one verse uh, than another. You know, we, we, um, we believe the verse is slightly different, you know, the encouragement in the epistles or the psalms, uh, and then, you know, the, the, the commands in Scripture. We believe it all. That's still true. Um, and belief and faith, of course, are kind of the same thing. But faith demands different responses from different passages. Now, you and the nobleman are both called to faith. You are called to take God at his word and walk in it. But depending on the word, that means different things. For the nobleman, to believe his son is well... He had to take that into his heart and let the confidence in Jesus' words overwhelm his doubt and fear. That's one kind of faith. And it's hard. Sometimes it's really hard. But that is the kind of faith that we are called to. To believe Jesus' words and let his word and our confidence in his word overwhelm doubts and fears that we foster in our hearts. You need to believe in that way. But sometimes Jesus' word to you is go your way the nobleman needed to believe that in a different way. Taking Jesus at his word here doesn't have anything to do with his emotional state. It has more to do with whether or not your shoes are tied, right? This is a physical faith response in walking in obedience. Physically walking in obedience, actually walking home. To believe Jesus' words here, the man had to respond in obedience. And you have to see this. When the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself, or or what's certainly much harder, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you, you are called to believe that. And I think most of you believe it as, well, I believe Jesus really said it, and I also believe that I should do it, but that's a weak faith. That's an, an incomplete faith. That's a little step above the faith of demons that believe and tremble. When we read, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, we have to realize that you are called to believe that, and I don't mean that you're supposed to believe that Jesus said it. To believe the words of Jesus is not just an intellectual acknowledgement that Jesus said what he said. Your faith is much more than that. When Jesus says this, a faith response is required. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, it's just like when he he told the, um, the, the, the paralytic, take up your bed and walk. You have have to actually do something. Or when he tells the nobleman, go on your way, your son lives. Oh, I believe you. And then he just sits there and looks at Jesus. No, he gets up and he walks. So we, we believe the words of Jesus, and we have to realize that a lot of the words of Jesus are telling us to do something. They're telling us to behave in a certain way. And we can't say, I believe this, and then also disobey it. Now let's let's finish up this text because there's another step to this man's faith. Verse fifty one says, And as he was now going down his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed, and his whole household. Now it already said that he believed. He believed and took Jesus at his word, but then now he sees the results and he believes again, or does he believe more? Jesus healed the boy. That's the first thing we got to see. Jesus healed the boy. And then the man believes Jesus was kind enough and generous enough to accept the kind of incomplete faith that that man had to offer. But we see that in doing so, in, in, in working with the guy, with the nobleman where he was and healing his son and, and showing that kindness, he brought the man into a better faith, into more faith, into a, a, a developed, mature faith. Not the most kind, not the, not the best kind of faith, not the most kind, uh, the most mature faith that Jesus talks to Thomas about, but, but we see this this man's faith has grown. Now, in chapter four, you know, we've seen a Samaritan faith, which comes from hearing, and we see this nobleman's faith that comes after seeing, but then it, it develops from a weak faith to something better. And the scripture is clear at which one is better. And of course, we rejoice in the healing. We rejoice in the faith of the nobleman and his household, and we rejoice in every testimony we hear of a person coming to faith because of something wonderful like this. We marvel. And, and I want this to be an encouragement rather than a, you know, any kind of scolding or anything, but, but there's a better kind of faith than the faith this man had. Here in this life, I believe that we're going to be the needy uh, people who are coming to Jesus saying, please, 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 please. We're always going to be that in a way. We're always going to be going after the Lord because we're pleading a cause. And that, and that's okay for now. But you have to see that the seed is supposed to grow. For the, the fullness of our maturity to, to come into uh, into its own. You know, We will be looking to Jesus, not just for the things that he offers us, or the things that we want, however necessary those things are, but for the beauty of his face. Now we, now we see in a glass, darkly, but then face to face. Jesus kindly gives us these things that our heart lo- hearts long for, but in the process, uh, he is also showing us that there are even deeper longings, that he's waking up, and those deeper longings he can fulfill, only he can fulfill. The nobleman has had a process of faith building. At first it was that shred of hope. Maybe Jesus can help. And then there's the hard faith of obedience and his faith grows. Jesus asks him to take him for his word and he does. But then he gets home and his son is healed and he does the math and he realizes that his heart's longings have been satisfied by Jesus Christ. And then it says he believed. He believed another kind of faith. He's growing and so are you. We are being transformed from glory to glory, and your mustard-seed-sized faith will grow into something greater under the care of a good gardener. How you believe in Jesus now and why you believe in Jesus now will develop as you mature in your faith. And we're all heading towards, towards that place where we seek Jesus for Jesus' sake. In the meantime, He is gentle and generous, and patient with us. And, and we give him glory both for his care and, and his care in our weakness now. And we give him glory for the hope of the glory that he's bringing us to. So with that humility and knowing our own weakness. With the, the, the joy of knowing that he is uh, the God who doesn't break the bruised reed or, smoke the, or, or quench the smoldering flax. And knowing that he will finish the good work that he's begun. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that your work that you're doing in your church, for your church, even in our weakness, would come to fruition in your time. We know from your word that you make all things beautiful in its time. And we thank you for your mercy and your kindness to the weak and to the needy. And we count ourselves among that crowd. But we also pray, Lord, that you would increase our mustard mustard seed-sized a grain of faith that you would bring us to fruition that you would bring us to maturity that you would have our church here Calvary Chapel of the Sierra that you would have us grow into the fullness of the stature of Christ and it's for your glory that we pray these things in Jesus name, Amen